0: A financial plan requires planning. It's savings, RRSPs, investments, and planning for the unexpected. TD Term Life Insurance can help protect your family's financial future if you were to unexpectedly pass away. You can apply for TD Term Life Insurance online or over the phone by speaking to a licensed advisor. If you're under the age of 55, you could be approved for up to $500,000 of coverage without a medical exam. Conditions apply. TD Term Life Insurance is underwritten by TD Life Insurance Company. Visit tdinsurance.com slash term life to learn more. Could all the talk about COVID-19 in the last 14 months have made us more fearful of the virus than we should be? There's no doubt that COVID-19 is a serious virus and that public health measures have been needed to try to stem the spread. But along with those have come stress and anxiety, especially among younger people tied to inflated perceptions of the virus's risk. I'm Dave Breckenridge, and this is 10-3. National Post reporter Tristan Hopper joins me to talk about why this anxiety is hitting younger people, what is actually driving it, and why better communication and policy from leaders could help address it. Don't forget you can find us on Spotify, Apple, Google, wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I'd love it if you could leave us a rating, a review, and tell your friends about us. So Tristan, we're hopefully nearly out of the COVID-19 pandemic. Vaccines are rolling out. There's the quote unquote light at the end of the tunnel. As politicians like to say to us, the mood here should be upbeat, almost celebratory. I mean, we are seeing some of that people with their thumbs up, flexi muscle vaccine selfies, but overall the mood is not as upbeat as you would expect. What are people feeling in Canada right now?
1: I would say, so the reason I wrote this story, and which is about COVID anxiety, uh, which ran Monday, um, was, uh, yeah, this general sense that when you speak to doctors, not all doctors, but uh, there's there's a fair amount of sort of medical sources. Uh, you can find them on social media. Or I, I'm in contact with them. They're like, oh, this is amazing. These vaccines are way more potent than we ever thought. I mean, all the fears that have come up about them that, oh, they won't, they won't address the variants. They weren't we can't do the poor gap. All of those fears, none of which have come to fruition. Like the vaccines kick butt; they're incredibly potent on the first shot, like eighty five percent protection, and then the second shot gets you at about ninety five percent protection. So they're essentially a medical miracle. When we do lists in the future of just amazing medical things, the COVID vaccines are going to be up there. It's like it's like the moon landing in terms of just the technological breakthrough. And despite all of that, you do have people who are bracing for COVID to continue. So essentially, we all know someone in our life who is not only super strict about following COVID regulations, but is following them more than they need to, like following them even beyond the super strict recommendations put down by public health authorities. So there definitely is, and we've all seen it, we all know this person, someone who regardless of what the situation is on the ground, their fear of COVID is just not backed up by any evidence. So... You know, I'm on the West Coast, a lot of w- wealthy white people here, you know, perfect demographic to worry about uh, invisible viruses. So uh, this is something very familiar to me. There are very, very many people in my social circle who are way more scared of this virus than they need to. Uh, like, mm-hmm. I'm talking about people in their 20s who are refusing to have outdoor meetings, which is just insane. I mean, your risk factor is already super low if you're in your 20s. And if you're outside, it's it's basically negligible. It's far more risky to drive to the outdoor meeting uh, than any risk you'll get from COVID. And yet, this is kind of common and even supported among some circles.
0: We're in the third wave, and we've seen variant strains of COVID 19 enter Canada the P1, the B1617, all these fancy alphanumeric names. With that, and because we've done a good job in Canada of vaccinating the most vulnerable in higher age categories. We're seeing more infections among young people. Is that driving the perception of the virus as as being more dangerous now? Even though it may not be more harmful or deadlier, but maybe more transmissible. But the idea that we're seeing more cases among young people, that might explain why more young people are getting worried about the virus.
1: Yeah, this this is something I brought up in the story because it was a good indication of how our perception of the virus is often doesn't match what's actually happening so I think it's fair to say it's a mainstream view that okay maybe I didn't have to worry about COVID-19 but these variants these variants they hit uh, they hit the young people harder once they get into a young person's body they're way more powerful they're more likely to kill you so I think that that was sort of mainstream this is something I heard from within my social circle like I didn't have to worry or my grandma was telling me you have to worry now now it's it's coming for the young people but then research came out about the variants, they're more transmissible, that's what makes them more dangerous. But once they're in your body, they're not more severe, and they're certainly not more deadly. So what we were seeing was, yeah, there was more young people in hospital, but that's because there was more cases. But in terms of the severity, I mean, if they had been infected with you know COVID-19 1.0, way back in April 2020, their reaction would have been the same. Mm-hmm. So that's an example of our fears didn't really match uh, what was happening. I would also mention long COVID here. Long COVID is a thing. People are getting COVID-19 and then having symptoms that last well beyond the ostensible uh, two weeks that it takes to recover from the, the virus. But some of the things I've heard about long COVID that I'll never be able to smell or taste again, or, you know, that's, it's virtually guaranteed. I mean, there are symptoms of long COVID in a very, very, very small percentage of people who are infected with COVID-19. But again, this public narrative that, okay, maybe it's not going to kill you because of the vaccine, but you're still never going to be able to smell or taste again. That is not backed by any reliable evidence.
0: One of the things I found interesting in your piece was the idea that, and I think it goes across all age ranges, even people kind of miss identify what the actual risk of death is from the COVID-19 virus. I saw one study mentioned people in France thought one in six people who got COVID died, mm. but the actual data from how many people die from the virus isn't hard to find. Like we may actually have access to better information about this pandemic than we did in 2009 with swine flu or 2003 with SARS. Why are we getting these numbers so wrong? It's this weird phenomenon.
1: There's been a few studies around the world where social psychologists just say, you know what, let's call a bunch of people, let's commission a poll, and then ask them how dangerous they think COVID-19 is. So how many people get hospitalized? If you get it, what's your chances of dying? Blah, 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 blah. And whenever they do this, whether it's the Netherlands, the United States, Canada, everything, people are always wildly overestimate how dangerous it is. So you mentioned that French study. So the infection fatality rate of COVID-19 right now, according to the latest WHO numbers, is 0.25%. So one in every 400 people who get this disease uh, end up dying of it. And then most of those are in the over 80 components. So that's for everyone of all ages. So if you just look at the below under 80 years old, it's way lower than that. You know, it could be one in a thousand, one or 2,000s. So, again, a very, very tremendously not deadly disease if you are out of the uh, the main risk factor of the 80 plus. So, I mean, that's what I'm hearing from physicians. They're like, we know who this disease attacks. So this isn't the Black Death. Like, this is a disease that attacks a very specific demographic of people. And we know how to address that and what policies to pursue that will keep those people safe. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't help us. When you have this public perception that it's everywhere and affects people equally. I mean, I've I've seen headlines that says uh, COVID-19 doesn't discriminate. That's a lie. That's insane. It's one of the most discriminatory viruses we've had, certainly at a pandemic level, that I can remember.
0: All this anxiety around COVID isn't just hitting places like Canada, which is in the midst of a third wave and has seen higher case numbers and has seen an increase in hospitalization and ICU admissions, but it's hit countries with relatively limited mortality, Like, I think you mentioned Singapore, which has had maybe like three dozen deaths and you're seeing anxiety in countries like that. Is it just this buildup of global talk about the pandemic that makes people feel as though they can't escape it?
1: I guess so. Yeah, we could uh, someone will eventually study why this is such a big deal. So it's sort of basically if you've got underlying symptoms of OCD or you've got, you know, some background mental illness, and that's most of us. COVID-19 is just sort of tailor-made to exacerbate those. So I think what they're finding is if you have some sort of anxiety issue beforehand, COVID-19 it just sort of tacks on to this. And Singapore was a surprising example. It shows that even if you are completely in the clear, and that's essentially described Singapore, yeah, you're still going to have stress levels that do not match the danger of what is happening. So there's a psychiatric paper I mentioned in there where they're saying, yeah, eventually we're going to get out of COVID-19, it's never going to go away, but we're going to get it to where it's danger to the population, is about the same as the flu. When we get to that point, there are going to be people who refuse to believe that, who refuse to open up and you know continue to stay in. Like after the Second World War, there was people after the Second World War who just refused to embrace a world without war. I think there was one famous example of a guy, uh, he went in his attic to like hide. And stayed there for the next 60 years just out of anxiety. So, you know, obviously he had some kind of mental problem, but um, a large global conflagration exacerbated that.
0: So this has to have an impact on the mental health of people. This constant worry about this virus and what it may do or what we perceive it may do to us, that can't be healthy, right? What does it do to our mental health?
1: No, and that's why there is some pushback among the medical community. There still is the core of doctors who are like, lockdown, 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 everyone's dying. And then, I mean, I cite doctors in this story. They work in the ICU. They are dealing with COVID patients on a daily basis. And they're saying, uh, yeah, if you're outside of the risk factors, the stresses from just unnecessarily worrying about COVID, um, that's a public health challenge as well. Why can't we address that as a public health figure? So. You know, if you're losing touch with family members, if you are uh, you know, not getting uh, cancer screenings because you're worried about going to the hospital or just the, the basic, you know, we know stress is bad for you. We know stress has, has long term health consequences. So you tackle those together for many demographics. And again, I'm not underplaying the danger of COVID-19, but if you are in a demographic in which your COVID-19 risks are very low, particularly if you're in a region like I am in BC where the caseload is quite low, uh, yeah, the the stresses you're feeling from unnecessarily worrying about the virus will be way worse for your health than COVID-19 could ever be.
0: So how do we combat that while also getting people to maintain some element of vigilant relating to stopping the spread of the virus? You know, because we do see stories of people in our age range or younger who had quite severe cases. And I know those may be an anomaly within that age range, but they are something that, no, I don't want to go to the ICU and be stuck on a ventilator and all that. Like, how do we combat those feelings while also dealing with the spread of the virus?
1: I mean, I don't know if this would work, but my inclination is to recommend just better public health messaging. I mean, one of the things that uh, the US, Canada, Europe is doing quite poorly on vaccines is the very simple message, which is true, which is if you get the vaccine after you're fully vaccinated and you've waited two weeks, your Fine. You can do anything you want. Like there are vaccine breakthrough cases, but they're so low mm-hmm. that so if you have the vaccine, and you're in a room full of people with COVID-19. That disease is still about as dangerous to you as the flu. But we're seeing very little public messaging saying like, oh, get the vaccine and then fine. It's just go back to normal. Don't wear a mask. Don't do anything. Don't social distance. You can return to normal life. You can go visit grandma. And instead, you're still seeing like I know this is happening all across Ontario. You have Elderly people who are fully vaccinated and yet their homes are still following social distancing and masking. So if you want to just remove hope from a population and give them nothing to sort of hope for and, you know, they can just dwell in uh, anxiety, it is to just ignore the basic scientific reality that we have a ticket out of this pandemic. It is working in the U.S. where they said you, you don't have to outdoor mask, if you're fully vaccinated, they removed that requirement just a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. They could have removed that requirement way earlier than they did. Uh, there was no reason for a fully vaccinated person to continue masking, particularly outdoors. It was just anti-scientific to have that recommendation as long as they did. So I think governments, just giving a more realistic picture of what vaccination does to you and does to your risk profile could help this immeasurably.
0: Is this a case where public anxiety fuels public policy that can in turn increase people's anxiety about something?
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. And this was, uh, the doctors I spoke to, they said, yeah, I think governments are pursuing lockdown policies based on what the public wants. And you're getting some pretty dumb lockdown policies, particularly in Ontario, like closing golf. That's dumb. Golf is outdoors. It is very socially distanced. It is incredibly easy to still do golf and keep safe from COVID-19. Like the number of instances of outdoor transmission of COVID-19 is basically negligible. Like you should not be shutting down outdoor areas (laughs) or closing down camping, or closing down golf that should stay open. But the argument is you have governments incentivized to just do really dumb stuff because the public is super freaked out, and there's not going to be a lot of pushback from them doing it. I would argue that if the public had a much more realistic sense of the dangers of this virus, they would be more apt to push back against it. So, yeah, something like golf, you'll just see it on social media. You'll say, that's stupid. And then you will have the true believers who say, well, they wouldn't recommend it if if there wasn't some reason behind it. When you don't know what you're fighting, the measures you're going to devise to fight that aren't going to match reality.
0: We're starting to see some provinces turn around and say, okay, look, we're starting to see more people get vaccinated. Once we get to a certain vaccine threshold, we'll start to reopen things. Saskatchewan has been on that train for a couple of weeks. Ontario just announced its plan on Thursday, but it doesn't take effect until June, meaning they'll get through their stages kind of by late summer. Alberta may be announcing a similar plan in the coming days. Is this the kind of thing that you feel that we need to see to kind of give people a bit more optimism that, hey, we're almost at the end of this, that once people get vaccinated, we can see some return to normalcy?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, mean, that's something I'm trying to do in my reporting is uh, sometimes there are great public health triumphs that have been made in this pandemic. And Instead, you'll often see like a 13 year old will die allegedly of COVID 19. You know, COVID 19 was potentially involved. And that is number one national coast to coast news, which is just not in keeping with risk profiles. Like there are 12 and 13 year olds who die of weird, completely freak accidents and causes all the time, but they don't get nationwide coverage. So, yeah, I think it would just be focusing on the optimism of what is happening. Like a big one that you very rarely see in COVID reporting, and I think should be basically at the top of every news story is that although cases are going way up, deaths are staying constant or going down. Mm-hmm. That's a major achievement. The case rate used to be directly tied to the death rate. If the case rate went up, we knew a bunch of people were going to die in two weeks. Now the case rate goes up and deaths are about the same. That's due to vaccination. So little things like that, little reasons for hope, for whatever reason, we're not hearing a lot about that messaging from public health authorities, from the media.
0: Tristan, always a fascinating discussion. Thanks for your time. Thank you. 10.3 is produced by Sean Knox, theme music by Bryce Hall. Thanks to my guest, Tristan Hopper, more from him at nationalpost.com. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening.